When you think of new wave music, you might think of bands like Depeche Mode, Human League, or New Order. But what about Modern Talking, CC Catch, or Bad Boys Blue? Today's guest selector is here to introduce you to those names and to the way Vietnamese American teens in the 80s found refuge in the new wave culture they created for themselves. What's up, folks? You're listening to Select Five, a show where you and I get to know creatives and community builders through five songs that matter. It's me again, your host, Pam Torno, and I'm super excited to introduce you to my guest selector, Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Elizabeth I. Elizabeth is a producer and director based in L.A. who works in both narrative and documentary features. Some of her films include docs such as Dirty Hands, The Art and Crimes of David Cho, and A Woman's Work, The NFL's Cheerleader Problem. But it's her latest documentary project that brings her to Select Five. Elizabeth is now in production on a film called New Wave, which is described as a historical coming-of-age documentary about Viet refugee youth who fled their homeland and redefined their identities through the 1980s New Wave music scene. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. That was an excellent intro. Okay. I feel like there's nothing left to say. You said it all. No, end of show. No, just kidding. Um, no, we have so much uh, to talk about, actually. Um, and, you know, I don't think we can talk about this film or this musical subculture without talking about your own personal familiarity with it. So let's start there. So the genesis of this story all began um, when I was pregnant with my first child a few years back. And it was just based on all the years I've been working in film and media and just not ever having told a very personal story about like my personal upbringing and life. And so I, you know, wanted to share another perspective on the Vietnamese American experience. And I just started to like, think about the kinds of stories I would share with my daughter. And this was what popped up this music, the fashion, the aesthetics, all of that stuff just kind of like was very overwhelming going through old photo albums and I was just like, I've never seen Vietnamese American people like this. And what better way than to share it through this lens of music? Yeah. So and this is um, we've talked about this before. So this is the music that your your aunts and uncles were listening to. Um, I know that you were a little bit young at the time that this scene was actually going on. What were you listening to at the time? Or were you too young to really have defined your own kind of taste in music? And what, like, what were you thinking of what they were listening to? Did you think it was cool or were you not into it? I mean, yeah, I was a very little kid, so I was just listening to whatever they were listening to. So I, it's all in hindsight that I realized none of this stuff was on the radio. So uh, I didn't come of age until the 90s, so it was like R&B and gangster rap. It was what we were listening to in L.A. at school, my friends. But I think at that time in the 80s, I was like a little, little kid and just remember like looking up to my aunts and my uncles and even like folks that were my parents' age and seeing them with the big hair and the the jewelry and the makeup, like everything about the 80s, when you look back, uh, it's just wild. So they were definitely heroes to me growing up. And I was like, I can't wait to grow up and join them. But uh, I came of age at a different time. So it, it, it was definitely just the backdrop of my childhood. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear that. I think there's something to be said about that, the power of... Uh, your elders or, you know, in, in your case, it would be your aunts and uncles. In my case, it was an older brother who like 
whatever they were listening to, they were really the ones who introduced you to, um, uh, to, to music or to whatever was cool at the time. And, um, I don't think we realize how formative that is to our taste, I think, or, you know, I, I can't speak for you, but I, I feel like that that's, that's certainly the case for me. I also think it's interesting that your aunts and uncles are, um, not really, it sounds like they're, you know, old enough, older than you, but close enough in age that you thought their taste was cool. So they were, they're not exactly as old as your parents, but they were in their teens. Yes, they were in their teens and their early 20s. So all of them kind of listened to this at the same time. And I think that was what made the discovery so special. It wasn't like, it wasn't because I thought, oh, you know, they're listening to this particular music that I need to make the film. I think it kind of uh, unraveled when I realized, oh, they were looking for a place to belong. They were trying to figure out this identity in America, not having quite shed this, you know, Vietnamese identity, but not quite coming into their American identity. So having to straddle this hybridized identity was such a unique thing. And then realizing that the music they listened to was also like kind of their own secret universe, this music scene that they found themselves in. So I, all of this is in hindsight. I didn't know it then. They didn't know it then. But like after, you know, having all these conversations, they were like, yeah, we, we were rejected by the mainstream. So we just rejected it. And here we are, you know, they found themselves in this, this space where they're like, all the Vietnamese kids listen to quote unquote new wave, right? It's like really Euro disco slash Italo disco. Um, but they were like, yeah, that's what all the Vietnamese, all the cool Vietnamese kids were doing. So we were doing it too. And of course, you know, it was absolutely like a counterculture because the, the mainstream wasn't listening to it and, and their elders could not believe or really shunned like they, um, my uncles, my aunts and all the kids in this scene that were taking on this persona, or I don't even know what to call it. Maybe persona is not the right word, but they were taking on an identity that was not uh, that was frowned upon by the elders. They were just like, wait, we want you to hold on to tradition. And this is not the way we want you to be here in America. So I feel like they were just fighting a lot of, um, expectations from society and their families. Yeah. That's a very familiar story The you know, the fighting against the elder generation, especially as, you know, uh, first generation Americans. So as you're researching for the film, as, as you've been researching for the film, what kind of, um, surprising discoveries have you made about the scene or about this music? Um, you know, cause you say you were, you were too young at the time to really realize what was going on. And so now looking back at it now and, and learning new things about it, there's gotta be some, some stuff that really kind of surprised you. I think that number one discovery was that it wasn't playing on the radio. I was too young. You know, they just put it out the cassette tapes in, we listened to the records you know, and the cassettes and it was always in the car. And then you'd go to a, a supermarket and that music was playing in the Vietnamese supermarkets. So you didn't, I never thought for a second that this wasn't what the other kids were listening to. Mm. Um, so that was a huge discovery. And so it took me down this rabbit hole of like, where did this music come from? Why was it so ubiquitous in our community? Um, so that's the number one discovery. I think the other one was it, that had to do with like a lot of reflection and hearing all the different stories because no one person told me this was our safe space or this is something that we found and made our own but after so many conversations it was a recurring theme of like 
this music was a safe space. It was something that we could call our own, unlike, you know, the Madonnas and the Michael Jacksons of the time where the mainstream, everybody was listening to that, or the parents who were trying to push like music from the 60s and 70s, where they were like, that's not our music, or learn Vietnamese, listen to this Vietnamese music. And they just wanted something that was theirs. And I I found that to be so special. And it it is universal. Like every, you know, coming of age story has that like, oh, we've, we found our space, a place where we belong. But I I just thought that was so neat that it wasn't, it wasn't American and it wasn't Vietnamese Mm -hmm. thing out of Europe that you had to go and get at a record shop that they would save up all of their earnings to go and buy some records, uh, you know, that they had to go to a specific shop because it was so specific, the kind of music they wanted, which wasn't topping charts. Yeah. So it was big where you grew up, which I understand is sort of in and around Orange County or LA, uh, around LA. I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley. So our kind of like close place was Chinatown, like in near downtown LA or in downtown LA. Um, But the, the epicenter of all of it was in Orange County in the first sanctioned little Saigon in America. So it was a bustling, thriving community. And I want to say a couple hundred thousand Vietnamese people are there today. Um, the, it's the where the most Vietnamese people live outside of the homeland, outside of Vietnam. So, but was this music also big in other Vietnamese diasporas around the country, like in San Jose or Houston, or was it specific to... Yes, the music was huge. Uh, well, I th- believe because the music industry is in Little Saigon, in Orange County, but it kind of spread everywhere. It, it kind of happened simultaneously because I do have some stories from the early days in San Jose, but those seem to be the two big hubs. And then it spread to the global diaspora as time went on. But the early 80s, it was already in um, Orange County and in San Jose. All right. So let's actually get into it. You're going to give us a little bit, we're going to get a little bit of a crash course in in Vietnamese New Wave. And as as Elizabeth said, these are tracks that are actually um, Euro disco or Italo disco from the the mid 80s, um, which ordinarily people don't categorize as New Wave, but that's certainly, um, this is how the, you know, Vietnamese teens at the time were kind of defining this music. Um, So let's get started. I'm going to assume there's going to be a lot of listeners who, like me, were completely unfamiliar with this subgenre and this era. So uh, let's put us in that world uh, with a little clip of Elizabeth's first selection. You're no good, can't you see, brother Louie, Louie, Louie? I'm in love, set to free. Oh, she's only looking to me. Only love breaks a heart, brother Louis, Louis, Louis. Only love's paradise, though she's only looking to me. Okay, so that was a song called Brother Louis, and the artist is Modern Talking. Uh, Modern Talking is a German duo. Um, and that was a song that was released in 1986, if I have that right. What um, what memories do you have attached to this song when you hear it? <laughs> I um when I think about this song, I I think about all the parties, like, you know, Vietnamese weddings, Vietnamese um, events, birthdays, anniversaries, like anything that was going on, this song would come on. It's just like the party starter, like it would be the first song of the night, probably for many, like when the dance floor portion of the night is open, when the dance floor is open for the night 
this is the song that comes on. And I think about this song often. It's probably like the top three off this list. Um, But I think about a lot of the lyrics and I honestly never knew what any of it meant. What does it mean? (laughs) I don't know. I'm looking at the lyrics right now. I was like, what does it mean? I've always wondered like, who is brother Louie? It's never explained. Um, You know, and I've heard some stories from, some other folks and they said, Oh, it's this music producer. And they just like, it started off as like a joke and you know, he's the music producer. I'm not sure if it was this song particularly, but he's connected to modern talking. So I have actually met this producer in person through making this documentary. Um, so they just said, it's a song about him and it became a huge hit. (laughs) And so this is played at big, big events. So it sounds like this is a this is a song that is beloved not just by like your teen aunts and uncles, but also the elders of your family. Uh, I think to start, not the elders of the family, but eventually, in time, you know, they could not this new waivers and this music and their scene was not going away back then. So the elders just they accepted it. And I think they just started to like the music too. Kind of like, you know, you realized your mom was also listening to something that you listened to when you were a kid. Sure. You play it. We're like, wait, what? Yeah. So yeah, I think, I don't think it was the elders, but I, it, at a party, let's say at my, I have a, a distinct memory of my aunt's wedding and all this kind of like, we're, you know, I'm Chinese, Vietnamese. So they were playing like Chinese and Vietnamese songs and there were people, you know, speaking in both languages. So throughout the entire night, but by the time the elders were tired and sleepy, it was kind of like that one hour, two hours at the end of the night that they have reserved for the dance party after like a long day of tea ceremonies and the reception and dinner. When all the parents went home or the elders went home, this, these are the kinds of songs that they would play. Oh, they can really cut loose. Yeah. Yeah. They can cut loose and the elders went home and all the young folks would get on the dance floor and brother Louie would kick off the night or at, you know, in the first few tracks, this would be a song that would come on. And this is a song. Um, I, I don't know the name of the artist, but I know some of, of these songs, uh, have been covered by actual Vietnamese artists. That's right. Yes, the a lot of these songs, I think every single one of these songs that I listed have been covered by Vietnamese artists. And I think that was uh, a, a special part of learning about this music because I, I listened to many of these um, in their form. So everything that we're hearing here is um, by these Euro Italo disco artists, but the Vietnamese artists sang in both languages. It And it's still, you can find it on Spotify. You can find them on YouTube. When you put these songs in, like a YouTube search and you put Vietnamese, you'll find the tracks and the artist will either sing it entirely in Vietnamese, um, taking great liberties with the translation or some pretty good translations that are true to the English um, form and they'll sing in both languages. So it's, it's really cool. Or they'll only sing the chorus in English. So it's, it's a variety of ways. I've heard them all kinds of, um, they've taken all kinds of liberties in, in their interpretations of the music. I love that. That's that's so great. Um, okay, I'm going to move us into your next song, which is also from 1986. Um, so this is from a, a Dutch-born German pop star. Uh, well, let's just take a listen. Jump in my car, I just can't wait. Jump in my car, this not be late. Jump in my car, give me a heart. Doesn't matter where we'll start 
um, is named CC Catch, and uh, you can probably guess that it's a song called Jump in My Car. What do you want to tell us about the song, Elizabeth? <laughs> I laugh at the top of everything because I, I feel like, am I the right person to tell you about all of this music when I didn't live in that era as a teen, a teenager, or as a young adult? But you, we mentioned it in previous conversation. It's about this car culture. I think about them and they're blasting this music. I remember like following them in um, their cars, going to the mall. And this is the music that they played. And Jump In My Car, I'll always remember that. Like that is a car banger. That yeah. is a car banger. You play it when you're in the car. Um, and yeah, this car culture was huge. And then the Toyota... Supra was the biggest car of that time. So there's, I probably have, which I haven't even posted all of them on our Instagram, loads of people sending me pictures of them in Toyota Supras and saying, what was it about that car? I don't know. It was, it was, it predated for sure Fast and the Furious and (laughs) all of them were lowering their cars, like painting them special colors or, you know, installing, uh, what do you call it? Car speakers in the car to like blast the music um yeah. it was the car of the era it was the car of the era for yeah. sure yeah and they were always in these bright color the photos that i've seen on your instagram they're always in these bright colors um <laughs> that's the one thing that i'll say is about this music in and the photos which i you know it's a pod this is an audio podcast so you can't see them but we will give you the link at the end of the show but um i feel like the you know, this music in the scene really kind of puts you in that era more so than the stuff like, you know, Michael Jackson or Duran Duran or Madonna or stuff that you hear a lot more these days in commercials or whatever. You'll, you'll hear it at a baseball game or something kind of takes it out of that era. This puts you directly back in it. Is any of your family actually going to be in the film? And what do they think about, you know, the photos that you're sharing and, and, and the music when you're telling, when you told them that you're making this film, what, what's their reaction been? That is to be determined. I have interviewed some of my family members. Uh, they might be more commentary, but they definitely asked me, why are you interviewing me? This is not interesting. What? Like everybody listens to music. No, why do you care? So I think um, ultimately this, I'm focused on like the music pioneers of the era um just to kind of be like focused on why they were so bold how could they you know hear music take it and then transform it and cover it and just kind of like they still are playing this music decades later decades later so I just that's what the film is focused on so in terms of my own family, I'll see. I think there there may be some commentary on it, but they they were very resistant to sharing, you know, knowing me. They don't even know what I do. They're like, why is there a camera in the house? <laughs> I told you I would be doing this documentary. I just need to hear because you guys really inspired me. I, you know, when I was a little kid, I was hoping that when I become a teenager, I would, you know, uh, have my own world and my own friends and this whole fashion thing that you guys, you know, lived through. And they, they didn't understand really. They're like, okay, I'll tell you. And they were, they were pretty reluctant in the interviews. So I think there's some commentary there, but uh, not too much of a deep dive. They're all pretty shy. I see. Yeah. So it's, it's really going to be more about like the DJs and the artists and people who are more directly involved in the music industry. 
That's right. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that is a really catchy song, Jump in My Car. A little footnote on this Cars topic is there's another song called Boys in Black Cars. It's super fun, but I think those two, in terms of car songs of that era, were huge. And I think that probably inspired a, a whole bunch of boys getting black cars because of this song. Actually, one of the subjects from the film was like, I got a black car because of this song. And I just <laughs> bumping that song every time my friends would hop in the car and we'd start bumping Boys in Black Cars. Amazing. And that makes total sense, you know, being in Orange County or, you know, Southern California where, where, you know, cars are necessary anyway, even even when you're a teenager, especially when you're a teenager. Um, Okay, so the next song we're going to move to is once again from Germany. Um, Let's take a little bit of a listen. Listen to my heart. Okay, that is a trio called Bad Boys Blue, um, and this is a song from 1985. That's a song called uh, "You're a Woman." What is the significance of this particular song to you, or your uh, to your answer, uncles? I think like a lot of the songs. I think some of them are like party songs, the car songs that we talked about, or Brother Louis. Um, I think this one in particular. There are many of them that fall into this category about just love and desire and yearning. And I think that's something that is special and unique because I they're fun and they're just kind of these pop songs, but they I think this says a lot about them is they are escaping from kind the kinds of traumas that they're experiencing. And so for a, for a lot of these like young refugees at the time, again, this is discovery through the work that I'm doing. It's just, I don't think their headspace was where their parents were. I, I know like what my grandparents were listening to and my, my parents were listening to some of that music as well, but they just, they needed an escape. And a lot of these love songs just, is just like, feel good. You're a woman. I'm a man. It's just about that kind of, it's a love song and it, it, they, this is where they want to be. They want to be in love. They want to be partying. They want to be in cars. And it was just a, you know, a fun escape for them. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was the one thing that I was going to point out is um, the common thread amongst your selections today is just that it is, you know, they are songs about escapism and about love. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think that's that's pretty common in the 80s. Just pop music in the 80s in general was was kind of in that in that zone. And there's just so much drama, actually, in the songs that you've chosen. Like a lot of them are, are ballads. Um, and so... Are these, I mean, do you remember your aunts and uncles being like, you know, moody teens and and putting on these songs? Yes, I'm laughing because I actually remember specifically seeing them very moody and my aunt specifically, I hope she never listens to this, but like crying <laughs> over a breakup, listening to this oh, yeah. music. Um, and I'm sure we all have those moments too, but it's just very specifically when you listen to this music. Yeah. I, I have an image of my aunt just like 
bawling her eyes out in her bed and walking in and then being told to leave the room. And yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I have the, all of these, I have some sort of like anchoring memory about them or what I was doing or what they were doing when I was watching them getting ready for a party. So uh, all of it that runs the gamut. Actually, one of the subjects for my film says, uh, I have all of these songs anchor a heartbreak, anchor uh, a fight with my dad, or, uh, you know, one of the best days of my life with my best friends in high school. So uh, I think that's what the power of music is, is that it, you just can have this, these visceral memories come back. Yeah, you need those songs to get you through those moments for sure. Um, okay, I would love to get us back into uh, your list. Uh, here's song number four, uh, and this is another German artist. Let's take a listen. Say you never, never ever go. So that was Leanne Ross uh, and a song called Say You'll Never. Once again, we have this dramatic, moody song, uh, love song. Uh, you know, I think you talked about it a little bit, I think, in the intro. I, I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the lengths that everybody went through to get to this music. Because, you know, as an American, once again, these are songs I've never heard in my life until you um, until <laughs> you sent, uh, you know, until I talked to you. Um, but these were huge hits in Germany and Austria and S Switzerland and, and Eastern Europe. Here, not so much. Um, the same could be said for all of your selections. So what? where were they going to find this? It wasn't on the radio. It wasn't on MTV. How did they, how did they even discover it? Yeah, I hope I'm not giving away like a bunch of little, you know, nuggets from the film. But one of the subjects, uh, it just kills me because I feel like I don't think I did that for anything. But he did. He was like, I worked at a fast food spot. I made two bucks an hour. And every time I got a paycheck, I was on a bus from Orange County to L.A. And it was two hours each way. And I just had to like listen to all these records there because I just wanted to make sure that the album I was getting was it. Cause I only had so much, I had like a hundred bucks in my pocket and I had to also like make sure that I got lunch that day and bus fare. And so I, I could only select so many and I'd sit there all day listening to entire records and then I'd make my, you know, selections at the end. So they would go to great lengths and there were only so many record jobs selling these. And so I guess I can get back to why they called it new wave at the time, I don't think there was like this moniker Euro Disco or Italo Disco. So there was UK New Wave, and that was where you found your Depeche Modes or your Pet Shop Boys. In those same, in that same section, you'd find these records. So they didn't have a, a separate place for it because there was like the mainstream stuff you were listening to, and then the UK New Wave dump, and then they just put these German, Italian, even Swiss, you know, um, Franco artists in there. So that to what lengths would they go? my the one subject from my film and he said everybody was the same way sometimes I'd go with a buddy and like take a trip all the way to LA or by myself um but that's a lot of dedication waking up early on a morning sitting there waiting for the bus and then taking a two-hour bus ride each way to like just sit in a record shop for the entire day just so he could know that he spent the money well and on the right records that's amazing and that's something to really be appreciated especially like the younger generation who just 
didn't exist without the internet, had no idea how difficult it was to discover new music and and to acquire it too. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I don't think I've ever, you know, ridden a bus that far away, but, you know, I remember like when new albums would come out and, um, you know, you know, lines around the record store and stuff like that. It, it was just so hard. And I think it just kind of meant a lot more once, you know, having this physical copy of an album um, and, you know, being able to go home and listen to it for the first time. I don't know. I think I just feel like it's it, it has more impact somehow. Percent. Um, I think just adding on to that is that's what, um, you know, Ian, one of the subjects in my film, he says, you know, back then we didn't have the internet. We knew nothing about these artists. We would hear a track, somebody else was spinning it. You know, he was one of the pioneers spinning this music, but he he said he heard it from other DJs in the community spinning this music. So he's like, I would hear the one track and I'd run up there and say, who is this? What, what do you know about this artist? And all he would get was, uh, you know, the name of the band, the artist and the record. And so- Yeah, there's no Shazam. Yeah, there's no, like, there's nothing else. So he was like, just on faith that he liked that one song would send him off on this quest to a record shop. And then he would say, oh my God, I would read every single word, you know, in these liner notes. I would, the, the album I had etched in my brain, I can tell you, if you ask me, what did the album cover look like? What did the back look like? What information I get? I know this because I would sit there with it. I spent my hard earned money and I would can tell you everything in there everything about the artist, like, oh, who was on there, the composer, the lyricist, the, he would know all that information. So he's still, you know, a big purveyor of this music and he's a concert promoter and he brings these people to the States now. So I thought that was so special to, for him to share that, you know, he now knows these heroes because of the internet. And he said, um, when Facebook became widely available, he signed up and he's like, I wonder if, you know, Leanne Ross or modern talking, how do I get in touch with these people? And he'd reach out. He's like, this is before, like they probably got tons of followers, but he said, Hey, would you ever be interested in coming to America to uh, play for your audience? And they'd write back and say, we have an audience in America. (laughs) (laughs) Your fans, not your audience, your fans. And they're like, we have fans there. We, we didn't know. And so they were very, very surprised when they found out that it was a Vietnamese community that you know all these vietnamese faces looking back at them when they're like this is this is our fan base so it it's a very fun discovery um in the film is there something specific is there a specific memory you wanted to share about this song um you know what it'll be about leanne ross herself because i i met her i thought that was fun and it was because of my film subject that's i I guess i kind of like in a roundabout way went off topic but kind of taking it back to this song is ian reached out to leanne ross on facebook ian is my film subject in new wave and he reached out to leanne years ago maybe over a decade ago and he said i love this song so much would you consider coming out and singing some of your big hits to your fans here in orange county in la and she said yes. And I think that's when their friendship began. And it was a huge discovery. Um, and then having met her, I think kind of like the little nugget there is she says, when I first bought the lyrics for this song, I didn't believe this could be a hit. Because all I say is, say you'll never, never, ever let me go. And 
I was just like, what? This is the song? No, I, she's like, I'm a singer. I love singing. I want to use my voice. And it's just like this repetitive line that's being said or saying over and over again in the song. And um, she said, she's so grateful that the producer convinced her to sing this song because uh, she says it's, it's her biggest hit. And it's, and what she realizes it's hypnotic, this kind of repetition, it became so hypnotic to her fans. And she's like, everyone knows the lyrics. It was so easy for everybody to say and sing. And, um, I thought that was so special. I think that's one of those things because upon discovery or rediscovery for me, it was just like, ah, this is kind of, you know, cheesy. Who's going to like this? But I just love the stories that come along with it. Everybody's connection and even her own. She was just like resistant to the song at first and she took it on and it, it really was her biggest hit. Yeah, these are great stories. One thing I wanted to ask you about is like, these are all, these four songs we just talked about are like from 1985, 1986. That, that seems to be like a huge, a very big year uh, in the Vietnamese refugee uh, youth community. Is that, were they finding these songs as they, when they were new or were they like a, a year or two after the fact? They're finding it pretty much right then. I'm not, again, this is the big mystery that my film goes down, like a, a rabbit hole of trying to find answers to why this music, why these years. Um, I think really I found some stuff in like 83, 84, but these were like the biggest hits. And I think it really, two things happening and happening in parallel. One is it was about a decade in post end of the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. 1975. So 1985, um, they were just really starting to grow roots and really starting to figure out what their identities are or were. And for the Euro disco, Italo disco slash scene, it was very um, aspirational for them to make this music because obviously Germans were speaking German, but they were like, singing this music, hoping that a broader audience would find it. And uh, I just thought that was so special that, you know, w on one side is these Vietnamese refugees, these young Vietnamese refugees wanted to find some sort of connection. And then on the other side, these European artists, uh, Germans, Italians, you know, French, were singing these songs, hoping that beyond their, sh beyond their borders, people were going to listen to their music if they sang in English. So some of the music's pretty ESL. Like if you kind of listen, you're like, what are they saying exactly? That's not how we say it here in America, in American English or oh, British. Oh, the translation English. is kind of funky? It's a little funky. Even yeah. even though they're singing in English, it's a little, it's a little wonky. Um, so I just thought that those two things happening in parallel um, were pretty cool. That the one side is like, I'm trying to reach out and find my people. And the other ones are like, I'm trying to find like a bigger audience. And here they are like finding each other and decades down the road, uh, finding out that the fan base is, you know, find, reaching their heroes and then the, the, the artists finding their fan base as well. So those were all German artists that we talked about. We're now going to, we're at the fifth selection of yours, um, and we're now going into Italo Disco. Um, so let's hear a little bit of this. Imagine your face in a sunshine reflection of Okay, that's from 1983, actually. Uh, the artist is an Italian singer uh, named Gazebo. 
and that's a song called I Like Chopin. Um, so the one thing that, you know, in, in preparation for this uh, episode, I was kind of sort of reminded of the Italo disco influence on American forms of music, um, like Chicago House, for instance. Giorgio Moroder was also a huge name in the 70s. He produced all of, you know, Donna Summer's biggest disco hits of the time. And then through your playlist, actually, Elizabeth, I learned that uh, Laura Branigan uh, did the song Self-Control in 1984, which is actually a cover of an Italo disco song. So um, By Raph. Yes. And so, yeah, I, I guess I guess if you want to speak to like uh, Italo disco and and how much because, you know, the other four songs were German artists, but obviously um, uh, folks were listening to a lot of Italo disco as well. Yes, they were listening to a ton of Italo disco. I'd say like the German artists were much more prominent, but the Italo disco comes to a close second because there's other artists that I didn't put on this list that are in other regions in Europe. Um I'm not sure where to start other than, you know, the Giorgio Moroder's or Giorgio Moroder being the the godfather of that sound really inspired a ton of people. And I think that really was the transition of disco being acoustic to this kind of European appropriation of it, taking it to synthesized instrumentation. And I, I was fascinated by that. I am not um, an expert or an authority on this. I'm not a musicologist, but finding out that little piece was like, oh, American disco was a was a sub- subculture in itself. Uh, and then having it be an aspirational sound in Europe. And then they kind of took that and, you know, it's like the exquisite corpse. They're like, we're going to add on our flair. So there was the Giorgio Moroder's version. Everybody was so inspired. In Italy, they were making that sound. But I want to say that the Germans, it was Kraftwerk. So they inspired so many other artists. I think Kraftwerk coming out with their music and all of these German artists were like, we want to emulate that sound, but taking it a little bit more stream, taking it way more pop. So uh, all inspired by American disco. I guess I'm, I'm also curious to know what's happening now. And you talked about it a little bit, what the the sort of, I guess, the, the OGs of the Viet New Wave scene in the 80s and their disciples, their disciples, what are they doing to keep this form of music alive or kind of reinvent it or anything? What, what's kind of what are you learning? What, what are they doing with this kind of music now? Yes, they um, well, th- what they were doing then. So Ian was the, you know, was a pioneer of that sound. There's so many people like him that were spinning the music or throwing the parties. And then there were the people like Linda Dai and her, all of her, con- her contemporaries, her peers that were singing music, doing covers and, you know, creating their own songs as well that sounded very much of the ilk. And they are still holding a torch for this music and they're still singing and performing, you know, 30, 40 years later, still singing this music um, on stage. In fact, there's been a huge resurgence of it. Uh, Ian's been throwing these parties. He's you know, um, he's been having these parties all across the country and he actually, um, spins in different parts of the world as well. I actually wow. followed him out to France before the pandemic in 2019. Oh, that's so fun. Open, yeah. He opened for, uh, modern talking and Sandra, uh, in Paris. And I was like really blown away by that. And then, um, Linda 
kicked off a new wave tour across the country. And she's been doing that for the last approximately five years with um, a number of artists that sang from that era. So it's been really, really exciting to see that. And I think the most special part of this is that there is an intersection with the new EDM, like rave kid scene that I was like, wait a minute. I've met some DJs that say, oh, th- this is the music of my aunts and my uncles. They're, you know, closer in age to me. They're like, yeah, my aunts and uncles and my parents, you know, even younger, the the Gen Zers, they're like, my parents listen to that music. I was wondering where that came from. And they would spin this with their electronic music, which I find to be so fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, wait, wait, what? These kids. And 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 that's it's it's not unusual because it's all kind of like synthesized music or electronic music it, that craft work and Marauder was the beginning of the electronic music scene. And I think now they, you know, whatever they want to call it, they, the EDM music scene is this, you know? So I, I think it's not, uh, I think it's special that they're spinning alongside like some old school new wave tracks with their music. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. I mean, I, it's great to hear that the influence and, you know, how, how younger generations are, are, are still, they're drawn to it and they're, and they're taking it in, in their own new directions, which is awesome perhaps is a difficult question for you to answer, but I would really love to know when you expect the film to be done. I'm crossing my fingers that it can be done um, by the end of next year, if not sometime in 2023. All of this is to say that I hope that we have a film out before 2025, which is the 50-year anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War. So I am working really hard with my amazing producers, Tracy and Anne, and it's really just the three of us that are busting our butts to get to the finish line. So it's been a long journey, and we hope that we meet our goals to get it out before the anniversary. I hope you do too. I, you know, I love, uh, I, I love stories about communities building around music and and finding salvation through it. And I'm super happy that you're bringing the story of Vietnamese New Wave to light. Thank you so much for teaching me about it. The one thing that I did want to ask you about before we go is your amazing companion Instagram account, um, it, which has so many great photos, not just of your, your own, but uh, it, it sounds like you're kind of crowdsourcing it and people sharing photos with you. Um, has uh, Tell me about like building that. That must be almost as fun as making the film. Yes. Uh, the Instagram is amazing. It was actually a huge pivot uh, for the team, my, my film team. We were just at a standstill, obviously, when the pandemic hit us in 2020. Yeah. And we just kind of like huddled and said, what do we do? We had all these dates to film and we're not going to do that. So we um, dove right into archival research. And a big part of that was saying, this is a community film. So let's start an Instagram and see if anybody's going to follow or write to us. And and we ended up just kind of like putting, I put up like photos of my own family and kind of inspiration that I found. And then... Um, yeah, it's a very engaged following. We don't have like millions of followers, but of the people that are following, they're super engaged. We got so much archival from the community. We even had um, people send us physical archives 
uh, somebody had like master recordings in their garage and cassette tapes and wow. VHSs and laser discs. And they're like, Hey, I don't know what to do with this stuff. We are just going to dump it at Goodwill at some point. Or, you know, one person said my father was a huge audiophile and he has so much music. What can I do with this? He's no longer around and our family didn't know what to do with it, but he like kept all this stuff in pristine condition sent us boxes and boxes of um, materials. So we are sitting on a treasure trove of stuff that we won't be able to fit all into this one feature documentary. So uh, I have lots of ideas of brewing. And um, if you have any stories to share, please reach out to us. New Wave Documentary on Instagram. New Wave Documentary on IG. That's so awesome. All right. So as some of you know, we always ask our guest selectors to curate a companion playlist. Elizabeth is a step ahead of us. She's already got a new wave documentary playlist on Spotify uh, that has the five songs that we discussed on the show, uh, plus many others in the 80s Euro disco genre. Uh, As per usual, we're going to share a link to that on our Instagram and in our show notes. Uh, Thank you so much, Elizabeth. This was awesome. I hope you had as much fun as I did. Absolutely. Thank you so much for wanting to hear about this story and sharing this music with the world. Absolutely. Um, Really looking forward to the film. All right, listeners, I hope you enjoyed listening in on this chat as much as I did having it. We appreciate you sticking with us till the end. Um, Please hit that subscribe or follow button if you haven't already. Uh, Also, share this episode. Tell a friend. Spread the love via word of mouth. We will always thank you for doing that kind of thing. Uh, Select 5 is brought into being by producer Kate Sullivan, technical producer and theme song composer Brian Douglas, and me. This is Pam Torno signing off. Catch you later, my friends. Bye.